This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Highway safety concerns. What happened? What were the driving factors and what can we learn and do better? After the deadly pileup on the Coquihalla calls for an investigation. A record year for overdose deaths. Where is the plan? Where is the continuum of care that we need? Also, a cannabis guru offers a place to test what you're taking before it's too late. And BC's vaccine rollout falls behind. We're going to have to look at things like mobile clinics, moving that product out. The challenge to immunize the elderly and who gets the extra shots before they spoil. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. BCRCMPs say yesterday's deadly multi vehicle crash on the Coquihalla was caused by severe winter weather and highway maintenance deserves no blame. But the BC Trucking Association is calling for a more thorough investigation, believing it could help prevent future tragedies. Rumina Dea has our top story. The debris field, more than a kilometer long. Truck driver Mitchell Danilak narrowly escaped getting crushed in the carnage on the Coquihalla. The haunting sounds of, of the crunching metal and plastic that are, that are going to you know, just stay with me for quite some time. It is horrific. RCMP now revealing a South Okanagan resident in his 40s died in the chain reaction collision. The man's dog also killed. Police say the victim's pickup rammed into a semi, which was stopped on the side of the highway after losing traction due to ice. The conditions were... Uh very treacherous, and I think it caught a lot of people unaware. Even rescuers needed rescuing. An ambulance, police car, and tow truck on the long list of at least 24 vehicles caught in the pileup, involving roughly 50 people. Remarkably, only one person still remains in hospital. No criminal charges are expected. A full investigation needs to happen. The BC Trucking Association expecting a thorough, transparent report from government. Did the contractor have enough equipment? Uh, was the contract requirements, were they enough to make sure that the road was safe? Minister of Transportation Rob Fleming not available for an on-camera interview. A spokesperson says plowing, sanding, plus gravel was laid before the chain reaction crash, adding that ministry staff are reviewing the incident with the maintenance contractor to see if anything else could have been done. It's just a really, really devastating incident, and uh, we better learn from it to make sure we can prevent it from happening again. Romina Dea, Global News. All right, some breaking news to tell you about now. A rescue operation has just wrapped up for a pair of backcountry skiers who were caught up in an avalanche. It happened northeast of Squamish on Mamquam Mountain. The pair were stuck near the base of Spire Peaks. Due to strong winds, the local Squamish search and rescue helicopter was unable to fly, so 442 Squadron out of Comox was called in to assist. 
and has just landed the two in Squamish, where one of the men has been taken to hospital with a leg injury. Shocking numbers today about BC's other health crisis. According to the coroner service, more than 1,700 people in our province lost their lives due to a drug overdose in 2020. That's a 74% increase over the previous year. And as Ted Chernecki reports, the problem has only been made worse by the pandemic. All those young promising faces on the Mums Stop the Harm website each with a circle of family and friends who will spend the rest of their lives grieving. And these are just a few of the 1,716 who died in B.C. in 2020, a new grim record. 7,000 have died from poison drugs since B.C. declared a public health emergency five years ago. 2019 looked more promising, but then COVID hit. It is very frustrating, and when I look at the faces, uh, if you go to the Mum Stop the Harm website and you look at the faces of all of those who have been lost in the past uh, five or six years, you do you do just feel like uh, throwing your hands in the air. What's the use? But of course, we can't do that. These people deserve a voice. Here's a graphic illustration of how the opiate crisis has worsened, due in part to COVID. This is 2019. The darker the color, the higher the death rate. And this is 2020. Vancouver's mayor calling this one of the greatest policy disasters in the history of the province. In responding to the report, the province says progress is being made. There was no system of mental health or addictions care in place in 2017. Has certainly uh, hindered uh, British Columbia's ability to, uh, to save as many lives as we wanted to from the overdose crisis. The minister notes the de facto decriminalization of possession of small amounts of drugs in B.C. New nurses hired to deal with addiction treatment. And just last week, 100 new beds for long-term recovery. But critics call changes at the federal and provincial level incremental at best. The provincial government also makes incremental steps. 100 beds for recovery when we need 1,000. They're all good steps, but they are not enough. They are a drop in the bucket. Where's the continuum of care that we need? The continuum that says to the person who arrives at a doctor's office or in an ER or other health setting who says, I need help with my addiction, all the way to when that person walks out the door in health. Most died alone. Most were males aged 19 to 49, and the victims came from all walks of life. Ted Chernicki, Global News. Well, one of the ways B.C.'s chief coroner says we can help reverse the skyrocketing number of overdose deaths is to have the drugs tested. Longtime pot activist Dana Larson says an organization he's involved with has tested more than 10,000 street drugs over the past year and a half and saved lives in the process. Aaron MacArthur reports. About 30 drug samples a day are crushed and tested at this storefront on Hastings Street. Everything from cocaine to heroin to fentanyl. An alarming number of results suggest people are not getting what they thought they were buying. When it comes to things like heroin, about half the samples that get brought in, they're actually getting fentanyl or some kind of heroin-fentanyl combination. People also come in saying, I bought this fentanyl, and it turns out it's not fentanyl, it's benzo. So even the fentanyl supply is not safe or accurate. Dana Larson runs the testing facility. Two FTIR spectrometers can give users results in just a few minutes. And with any drug, we can't guarantee its safety because, you know, we can only see what we can see. 
and those results are posted online so the community can quickly see what has been tested. Right now, about 85% of the samples are coming from Vancouver. So we've done over 10,000 tests right now so far since we opened. And the, the tainted drug supply in BC is well documented. According to the BC Centre for Substance Use, the border closures during the pandemic have ratcheted up the adulteration. We don't know specifically how they affected the drug supply in the province. Um, we can only sort of react to it. It's very hard to be proactive. Testing, one more step in harm reduction. But the service only needed because of the unregulated, unsafe supply. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A B.C. Supreme Court judge has awarded a Kamloops man and his family nearly $7 million after a beating that left the then-teenager with permanent severe injuries. Back in June 2016, Jesse Simpson was beaten into a coma by Christopher Tykreeb, who attacked the teen with a baseball bat after finding him on his property. Simpson suffered severe brain injuries and will require 24-hour care for the rest of his life. In 2018, Tykreeb pleaded guilty to one count of aggravated assault and is currently serving a seven-year prison sentence. In January, a civil trial found him liable for damages, which the judge has now assessed at $6.94 million. All right, let's take a look at today's COVID-19 numbers for B.C. We have 449 new cases. That brings our total to 72,305. Sadly, we've had nine more deaths, and that means 1,278 people have now died from complications of the virus. 224 people are in hospital, 63 in the ICU. 66,603 people are considered recovered. We are now left with 4,317 active cases cases and 6,869 people in self-isolation. Starting in March, the widespread distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine will be one of the biggest logistical operations in B.C. history. Dr. Bonnie Henry says the detailed plan will be released next week, but we're now getting a better idea of the massive challenge to get two shots in everyone's arm. Richard Zussman reports. It's a logistical puzzle vaccinating a group of people at home, spread out province-wide, and in many cases lacking mobility. That's the challenge of mass vaccinating those 80 years of age and older. We have been working on that diligently since uh, December. The province to show their work next week, with details of the mass vaccination plan for those born in 1941 and earlier. The first challenge, making sure those who are eligible know they're eligible. For right now, I'm hoping that uh, you'll contact your, your elderly neighbor, uh, let he or she know that vaccines are on the way, and help them register, help them get to a clinic. More than 200,000 British Columbians are 80 or older. Between 30 to 40,000 of them have received or been offered the shot in long-term care, leaving about 160,000 still needing the shot including as many as 65,000 who have received in-home and community care. We are going to have to incorporate into the plan a way to get the vaccine to people in their homes. There will be people who are able to get to a vaccination site, but they can't drive themselves. So. The province still grappling with how to administer the vaccine this way. I think there will be encouragement for people if they are capable and able to go to the vaccination centre to do that so that we can focus on those who are not able 
uh, to get to the vaccination centre. The primary concern around home visits from vaccine ethicists, especially with the hard-to-handle Pfizer vaccine, is waste. And what should be done with extra or soon-to-expire doses? No one should be doing this without that plan before they start. The bulk of the vaccinations will take place at community sites, not at homes. And the goal is to start the mass distribution at the beginning of March. It will include both rural and urban communities. If you're going to go out to a community like McBride, where there are frail elderly uh, citizens, um, you're going to have to take a quantity of vaccine. And we're going to have to look at things like mobile clinics, moving that product out. One, two, three. The registration process will be done both online and over the phone, including in multiple languages. And I hope this entire high-risk group for COVID-19 is vaccinated at least once by the end of March. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry right now for a look at where BC is in our rollout. It has been a bit of a disappointment so mm -hmm. far, Keith, but when it comes to getting the vaccine, what's up? Yeah, things are supposed to ramp up fairly quickly, at least on paper. The vaccines can't get here fast enough. Pfizer, of course, slowed right down, as did Moderna. Uh, again, in terms of the scheduled vaccines, not arriving anywhere near the numbers we had hoped. But things are looking better in the coming weeks. Take a look at what's expected so far in the next couple of weeks. This week alone, we had a very small amount of Pfizer, just 9,400 doses. But the numbers start to get very large next week, 54,900 Pfizer doses. And the week after that, even more, 64,000. Pfizer doses and 21,000 Moderna doses. As Richard noted in his story, it's a logistical challenge to say the least how we're going to get all those doses in people's arms. Uh, again, though, this is all part of the plan. The government insists they have a good vaccination network ready to spring into action. Finally, an update today on the number of people who have been vaccinated so far. 144,203 people have had one dose and uh, 15,684 have had their second dose. Those numbers are expected to double over the next two weeks. All right, Keith, thank you. The neighbors thought their long nightmare was ending, but Emily Yu had one final surprise left. The notorious townhouse owner and hostel operator was forced to sell her property by the courts, but tried holding up the sale. How the judge sent her packing again. That's next on the News Hour. A B.C. band that rocketed to fame in the 1980s and just as quickly seemed to disappear. The strange story of strange advance coming up on the NewsHour. Also coming up, coming in hot, the mystery of why this B.C. ferry slammed into the dock is solved. That's later. Right now, though, the long legal saga of North Vancouver's notorious Oasis Hostel and its combative owner, has finally come to an end. A judge has accepted an offer to buy the property in a forced sale, but only after dismissing a last-minute bid by Emily Yu, the previous owner, who was trying to scuttle the deal. She's already been arrested. Forced to move out of her home, still in a possible final act of defiance. Emily Yu arrived to court 40 minutes late with an unverified home sale offer in hand. Miss Yu came to court today to claim that she had a competing offer, but she didn't produce any documents. She didn't produce a name or a price. The court ordered sale of Yu's North Vancouver townhome, once run as a 15-bed hostel, up for approval by B.C. Supreme Court Justice Barry Davies. A final decision in a lengthy three-year, 11-month legal struggle. 
this sale really represents the fact that our civil justice system does work, albeit really slowly. In court, Justice Davies stating, you have made life for your neighbors unbearably miserable. You have put people through incredible expense. You have been your own worst enemy in this matter. Your townhouse will be sold. She simply ran out of time and ran out of excuses and ran out of lies. The court first heard how you obstructed the sale process. Entryways were locked, a bailiff was shoved. She was arrested for disobeying a court order and spent 10 days in detention at the Alouette Correctional Centre. You was released and evicted from the property. But pictures show the mess she left behind. Misused debts will be paid, including the money that she owes my client, which now um, is beginning to amount to almost $100,000 in court expenses and fines. Now, just to show how much worse the consequences have become for Emily Yu, we need to take a trip back to September 2017. That's when the Civil Resolution Tribunal ordered you to pay a fine of $4,600 for using her town home as an Airbnb, another $1,300 for boarding pets at her place, and $225 to cover the tribunal fee for a total of 6,125 bucks. More importantly, when it came to violating her strata's bylaws, you was ordered to stop. We wouldn't have had this huge cost to our legal system, we wouldn't have had this huge cost to our strata, and this even larger cost to Emily as a person. You know, she, she at the ultimate, ultimately at the end of the day now has lost her home. Despite Yu's arguments and competing offer, her townhome was sold for $800,000, closing on February 28th. Corrupt system. Well, it marks the end of the legal saga for the Strata. You don't have any regrets, Emily? No. Despite losing her home, Emily Yu remains defiant until the end. John Hua, Global News. A man facing a string of charges in the North Okanagan has had his latest court case put over to next month. Curtis Sagmoen is accused of assaulting a police officer at his family's property in Spalamchin in late October. Earlier that month, RCMP issued a warning for people in the sex trade not to respond to requests for service in the area. Sagmoen has previously been convicted in three cases where the victims worked as escorts. The remains of missing 18-year-old Tracy Genero were found at the farm in 2017. No one has been charged in her death, and Sagmoen has not been named as a suspect. Up next, historic conflict at a BC institution. It has yet to acknowledge that systemic racism exists in the Royal BC Museum. What needs to be fixed after high-profile resignations and departures? And Netflix and chill, how a BC doctor is helping keep the movie maker happy in COVID times. It's a steady commute for traffic headed off the North Shore and into Vancouver for eastbound Highway 1 over the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge deck. You're moving well northbound coming out of the Cassier Tunnel and headed to the North Shore as well. Kermac Collision and Autoglass provides no-cost windshield chip repairs with your insurance coverage. And Kermac donates 100% of their income from chip repairs through Kermac Cares for Kids. In Global One above the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge, I'm Amber Belzer. All right, we've been bracing for wintry weather later this week. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now to talk about a possible, possible change in the weekend snow forecast. Christy? That's right. So all week long, we've been advertising snowfall for Friday night into Saturday morning. I've been talking about pulling out your toboggan. Well, just today, we've started to see a change in the computer models, which can happen. And keep in mind, there's still some uncertainty here. But I really wanted to give people a heads up. Now we're leaning towards the potential for very little snowfall, if maybe no snowfall for the 
mainland regions and for Vancouver Island snowfall, but potentially less. When I come back, we're going to talk about why this change occurred and also why you shouldn't put away your toboggan just yet. All right. Thanks, Christy. Okay, I was hoping you'd say that. Thank you very much, Christy. So days after the resignation of its CEO, the Royal BC Museum is responding to public criticism that it is a toxic place to work. The initial complaints came from employees, and this week the curator of the Indigenous collection left what he calls a wicked place. As Kylie Stanton tells us, all this has caught the attention of the Premier. Another day, another resignation at the Royal BC Museum. The museum needs to take responsibility for the fact that it continues to deny that systemic racism exists. Troy Sebastian took to Twitter earlier this week, detailing his experience as the Indigenous Collections curator, writing, I am happy to leave that wicked place behind. You cannot treat Indigenous peoples like this and tell the story about us and of us without us. The departure comes just one day after long-term CEO Jack Lohman announced he was stepping down. So we mutually agreed that, in essence, it's a good time to close one chapter of the museum and to start a new one. Um, um, The move comes seven months after reports of systemic racism and discrimination came to light, after Lucy Bell, the then head of the Indigenous Collections and Repatriation Department, resigned. Bell claimed she had experienced microaggressions and harassment, all stemming from a culture of racism and discrimination. I think it's it's really a toxic place to work in and um, quite obvious that uh, the Royal BC, BC Museum hasn't done the work that it needs to do to uh, really, I suppose, decolonize itself and, and change the culture. But the museum claims it's a work in progress. A BC Public Service Agency investigation is underway and a diversity and inclusion consultant is on board. Systems, processes, all of these things are being reviewed and We have a task force that's going to be reporting out on those and changes that we need to make so that uh, we do have a, you know, a a safe, diverse and inclusive workplace. I was alarmed uh, by the allegations. uh, The premier expressing his concern Wednesday, announcing the government is working on anti-racism legislation set to be tabled later this year. Not just tip our cap when we see it and and condemn it, but to make sure we have policies and legislation in place to protect the diverse people of our great province. Sebastian won't be around to see how it all plays out. He can only hope his decision to resign will help to inspire change. The time has come. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Two men have been killed in a tugboat incident on B.C.'s north coast. The Joint Rescue Coordination Centre received an emergency beacon from a tugboat in the Gardner Canal south of Kitimat shortly before 1 this morning. RCMP marine vessel Inkster, stationed in Hartley Bay, found the first body. The second was recovered by the Coast Guard. A third sailor was spotted on the shore by a private helicopter and transported to hospital with undetermined injuries. The tugboat had been towing a barge that was en route from Kitimat to Kamano. An investigation by the Transportation Safety Board has found the anchors failed to deploy when the spirit of Vancouver Island hit the dock in Tawasson last April. The TSB probe found that after the vessel failed to respond to a helm command, the captain ordered both anchors released. But when the buttons to do so were pressed, nothing happened and the ferry hit the concrete berth wall at a speed of nearly five and a half knots. Luckily, no one was seriously hurt in the collision. In the wake of the crash, BC Ferries has updated its fleet's anchor stowage and deployment procedures. 
Well, you have probably seen his viral Bhangra dancing videos and his mission to spread joy, positivity and hope. His message has been decidedly void of political commentary or vitriol of any kind until now. In a Global News exclusive interview, Gertie Pander breaks his silence about the farmers' protest in India. Neetu Garcha explains why. All over BC, signs of the clear support here for farmers protesting in India. But like this truck full of meticulously stacked cauliflower arriving this week for farmers camped near India's capital, when you peel back the layers of this massive movement looking past the politics at play, you uncover it's about more than agriculture laws and income. It's about a culture. If there's anyone who can explain what that entails, it's Gurdip Pander. He's the Yukon-based Bhangra instructor whose passion for this dance is rooted in the farmers' movement. If there was no farming, there would not have been any Bhangra today. Created as a celebration of good harvest, Pander teaches this dance to promote not only happiness, but a key mantra in Sikhism called Jardikala, or eternal optimism. But like many in India and around the world, government crackdowns on farmers and their supporters have weighed heavily on Pander, who's speaking publicly about the protest for the first time. It brings moments of reflection, moments of sadness or personal grief as well. So I went through all the, these things. He was born and raised in a farming family in India and lived through the 1984 Sikh massacre. I remember that when I was a child, different adults at that time from my village, they were picked up by the state police and they were beaten, they were tortured. Fears of that level of violence happening again are high as many sick farmers and their supporters are being portrayed as terrorists. I started feeling that this word is being used by media, is being used by governments just to fulfill their own agendas. As a man who helps build cross-cultural bridges with indigenous communities in the Yukon every day, he wants people to understand agriculture is a way of life, an identity generations deep. Once you're disconnected from your identity, I think you'll, you have lost everything. And the power of Chardikala, which has long fueled his own movement. Just like the one happening half a world away. Neetu Garcha, Global News. Still ahead, a subdued celebration for Chinese New Year. How COVID-19 is going to make it a lot quieter. Also ahead, how an ER doctor plays a starring role to keep BC's movie biz buzzing. Join Global BC as we celebrate the hope your help can bring. With three days of stories and interviews all leading up to this year's variety children's charity Show of Hearts Telethon. Saturday, February 20th on Global BC. I'm Amber Belson, Global One. We're peering down on the Alex Fraser Bridge and traffic southbound has four lanes into North Delta. We've got three northbound and it's smooth sailing for you both directions across the bridge deck. Also moving well on the east-west connector both ways. Get 0% financing for up to 84 months plus $8,000 in government rebates on the all-electric 2020 Bolt EV LT. Visit ChevroletOffers.ca. Well, tomorrow is Lunar New Year, the year of the ox, always a colorful celebration. But due to COVID, it is a different event this year. As Paul Johnson reports, Richmond, with a large Asian population, has been an early adopter of pandemic safety measures. And that has paid off with one of the lowest infection rates in the province. 
the ancient ritual of firecrackers on the Lunar New Year. It's meant to scare the evil spirit away. Doesn't that sound like a good idea right about now? Always a big feast for the uh, Chinese Canadians uh, to celebrate the Lunar New Year of Ox. Richmond's Victor Ho is a former editor of the Tsingtao newspaper and says this year's celebration will be massively stripped down. No parades, no big family gatherings. This year should be very tough. But if you're talking about what Chinese Canadians are doing, there's another thing to acknowledge, that collectively they appear to have had a markedly better track record at holding off COVID-19 cases than the population at large with many in Richmond starting their safety protocols long before the rest of us did. Yeah, they, they are pioneer, pioneer. Social distancing and mask wearing long before the government required it. There's a good argument that the Chinese community should be praised for being ahead of the curve in the pandemic, but it hasn't worked out that way. Kung flu, yeah. With the previous U.S. president singling out China, it's no surprise that people of Chinese descent became targets. Stats Canada found Asians were more likely to experience harassment during the pandemic, and locally, Vancouver police reported a similar surge. It has been uh, difficult. Bill Chu is with the group Canadians for Reconciliation and says there's a long history of misunderstanding of too many still seeing Chinese Canadians as a monolithic block instead of the politically and culturally diverse community that they actually are. He, too, is preparing for his quietest Lunar New Year in a long time. This New Year? <laughs> Going to do next to nothing. In Richmond, Paul Johnson, Global News. One of the industries that has managed to survive and thrive in B.C. during the pandemic has been movie production, thanks in part to its ability to innovate. As Linda Aylesworth reports, Netflix has been using the expertise of an emergency room doctor to help keep the cameras rolling. We've got examples of paramedics and nurses and team members set up at sporting events and music festivals. When Dr. Adam Lund, an emergency medicine physician, wasn't at Eagle Ridge or Royal Columbian Hospitals, he could often be found helping out at large public events. This is uh, one of the Tough Mudder events where we have the whole group together, a bit of a huddle as we prep and train for the day. But the COVID-19 pandemic changed all that. I was looking at a summer with a, a whole bunch of cancelled events and it did leave me with some time in my schedule. So that opened the door to get involved in helping the film industry. Which in many ways is not unlike the mass gatherings he so enjoyed working at. A little bit of what we do is medicine and healthcare, but a lot of it is operational planning and it's live event production. And what the film industry does on a daily basis is, is produced. When the film industry was ready to cautiously start up again after the pandemic had shut down production for a few months in the spring, entertainment giant Netflix asked Dr. Lund to help them implement the many new safety protocols. And what I was able to do is bring in what we'd learned in the hospital um, into that environment and help them to come back to production in a, in a safer manner. But following recommendations can be challenging on a movie set. How, for example, do you go about doing hair and makeup? So in order to do that, that one safety precaution of maintaining physical distancing has to be traded away for enhanced PPE, as an example. Coming up with creative ways to follow safety protocols is a daily struggle. 
But so far... There has not been, um, across the industry, substantial circumstances where there's outbreaks related to coming to work. The protective procedures and the, and the practices on film sets are working. As for Dr. Lund, who's taking a sabbatical from his role as an emergency physician... I feel like... Um, you know, I turned the page and I've found that there was a chapter that I had no idea was coming and I'm just enjoying a really interesting chapter in a professional journey. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Stardom comes in many forms. And still ahead, strange advance on its stardom in the 1980s. How the BC band handled its fame and fortune and what they're working on now. And coming up in sports, things heat up at Rogers Arena with the Calgary Flames in town. Getting that forecast, Christy. Yes, we're going to be working hard over the next 24 hours, that's for sure. Here's a look at the images coming out of the Fraser Valley with incredible strong winds. Uh, they had a number of people without power through the Fraser Valley. And let's have a look at the Howe Sound region where they had wind gusts up to 115 kilometers an hour. This is from Porto Cove. So it's no wonder we had wind chills down to minus 25 through the Fraser Valley and through the Howe Sound region. Metro Vancouver range from minus 8 to minus 11. That minus 8 put us at the third coldest uh, uh, wind chill for February 11th and we're expecting these wind chills again tomorrow and that's one of the reasons why we likely will see a bit of a change with our snowfall. Here's a look at it. What we get in this type of scenario is a battle between that Arctic air that is pushing out towards the coast and you well know that it's a dry, cold Arctic air, right? And now we're starting to see this moisture push on shore. The two combined is what creates the snowfall. Now initially we were expecting this one to win the battle and push further further inland, but it looks like that Arctic air is really going to hold strong enough that we'll see that moisture push onto Vancouver Island, but it will continue to slide south of our area and not be able to come on shore. So there is, again, some uncertainty with this, but I really urge you to tune back in, but that's sort of the scenario we're looking at. And I want to point out this. This one here is the Canadian forecast. This one's a European forecast. European is still holding on for at least a little bit of snow for Metro Vancouver. That's why I say don't put away your toboggan just yet. But at this point, it looks like we're backing away a little bit. In the meantime, enjoy the sunshine tomorrow. It's certainly going to be cold once again. We're seeing wind chills in through the interior regions down to minus 40, minus 45. And we'll likely see minus 25 again through the Fraser Valley region. But yes, we're watching still for that snowfall event Friday night into Saturday. So tune back in tomorrow, that's for sure. And tonight's Central Windows weather window is a great shot from uh, just west of Prince George area, again, showing the, how cold it is in through the interior. That's incredible shot. Thanks, Christy. Throwing the boiling water up there in the air uh, to watch it freeze. Okay, things heating up at Rogers Arena, too, with a homestand, Squire. Yes, the Calgary Flames will actually find it warmer in Vancouver, I'm sure, than Calgary. Uh, the Canucks get to face Jacob Markstrom tonight, and they know how to harass their old friend. Really got to get in Marquis. In, eye, in his eyes and, and try and get a lot of pucks there. Now, Marchum has already shut out the Canucks this season, but this will be his first game against the Canucks as a member of the Flames in Vancouver. Also ahead when Squire's done sports, his profile on a BC band that was a household name in the 80s and what inspired them to go on hiatus for three decades.
You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Yes, yes. Luxembourg, a tiny principality? Municipality? It's principality? Well, I think, yeah, it's, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's municipality. No, no, not municipality. It's one of the alities. It's an ality. It's a reality that we should stop talking and let you take over. Okay. Um, <laughs> So the Canucks have uh, played four more games in the Calgary Flames, which means, obviously, that at the end of these four straight games against Calgary, the Flames will still have played four less games in the Canucks. So Vancouver needs to win the majority of the four. Another Toronto or Montreal-like series for the Canucks, and that would be a calamity. They have to be ahead of Calgary in points when this series is over. Thatcher Demko is going to start in goal. He could use some help. I think scoring the first goal might be a good idea for the Canucks. Barry has a preview. The Canucks will try to snap out of that five-game losing streak. Their last loss in Toronto at least had some positives, but one thing they must improve on is getting off to better starts. The Canucks have given up the first goal nine times this year, and in those nine games, they've lost all of them. And in six of the nine games, they've fallen behind by two goals or more. Last season, the Canucks actually showed a penchant for coming back from a deficit. This year, not so much. The confidence is frail, and they seem to need to get a lead if they're going to have any success. And that is what they are focusing on tonight against the Flames, getting off to a much better start. When we do fall behind, uh, I wouldn't say impatient, but we definitely get away from our structure a little bit and, and what makes us successful as a team. So um, it's hard. You know, everyone's trying to win. Everyone's trying to you know, push, especially if you give up that first goal. But sticking to the game plan is something that we've talked about and just, you know, sticking to our structure and knowing that it works. It really shouldn't change your mindset uh, as far as the rest of the game goes. We, we've talked about a process here a lot. And when it comes to individual games, it's a 60-minute process. But analytically, the first goal does matter. Standing in the way of the Canucks busting their slump is old friend Jacob Markstrom who played 229 games in a Canuck uniform, many of them at Rogers Arena, where he put on spectacular displays of goaltending. He's already beaten Vancouver twice this year, including a shutout. We really got to get in Marky's, in, in his eyes, and, and try and get a lot of pucks there and, and create a lot from that. When you're playing a good goalie, you want to get traffic, and uh, that's always a, the first point for really any team you're playing, so... You know, I'll say that, but as far as any other little details, I'm, I wouldn't want to get into it as far as our pre-scout on a goalie. Now, typically when impact players get traded away or sign as free agents elsewhere and come back to Rogers Arena for the first time, the team plays a video tribute to show their appreciation. No fans in the stands, but the Canucks still plan on doing that for Tanev and Markstrom tonight. At Rogers Arena, Barry DeLay, Global Sports. Gary didn't complain about how cold it was. He had an open shirt, too. He's a much warmer guy than Jay Janauer. <laughs> hey, uh, Connor McDavid's going showtime. No, he just misses. Darn. Uh, but Surrey's Jujar Kara is not going to miss. He scores here. Why does Montreal wear those uniforms? Come on. The originals are better. 2-0 in the third period for the Oilers. I want to show you this nice goal in this game between the Penguins and the Islanders by Casey Sezikis. Sezikis goes lovely with pita bread. And he also scores nice goals. Like that one right there. Last time we checked, they were in the shootout. And it's still going. 3-3. Three, three. 
Remember last year, Pebble Beach was won by Abbotsford's Nick Taylor. He had a 63 in the first round. That's not Nick there. He had a 63 in the first round, and he just went on and dominated. Won by four shots, if I remember correctly. Here he is here, rolling in an eagle putt at the second hole. That was his second tour win last year. Jordan Spieth playing in the same group as Taylor. This is from 113 yards away. You were quite bullish on his chances here. We know he's got a tremendous... Backspin, eagle. Yeah, shot a 7 under 65, tied for fourth. Patrick Cantlay shot a 62, which tied the course record. He leads at 10 under par. Back to Taylor. This is a birdie on 14. 3 under 69, tied for 32nd. Merritt's Roger Sloan is at 2 over par after 18 holes. All right. The Raptors tonight taking on the Boston Celtics. Fourth quarter, Raptors down. Pascal Siakam goes baseline, scores. But the Celtics seem to have this one in hand. Kemba Walker outside the arc with the green shoes. 113.95 in the fourth. And we found out Luxembourg is... A Grand, Grand Duchy. Duchy. Which reminds me of that song, Pass the Grand Duchy Upon the Left Hand Side. Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. Do you remember what are we, that? I'm sorry. What, I'm kicking it old school there. Okay. I was I don't way even know old. What that school. is. Yeah. All right, here's Andrew with a preview of Global News at 11. Thanks, Chris. We'll have more on a BC Supreme Court judge awarding a Kamloops man and his family nearly $7 million after a beating left the then-teenager with life-changing injuries. And these pictures just into our newsroom northeast of Squamish on Mamquam Mountain. A rescue operation has just wrapped up for a pair of backcountry skiers who've been caught up in an avalanche. 442 Squadron out of Comox Landing in the area to assist. The warning to outdoor enthusiasts during this latest blast of cold winter weather tonight at 11. Chris, Sophie. All right, Anne, thanks very much. Up next, an earworm from the 80s and the band behind it, back from a 30-year hiatus. That's next. Join Global BC as we celebrate the hope your help can bring with three days of stories and interviews all leading up to this year's Variety Children's Charity Show of Hearts Telethon, Saturday, February 20th on Global BC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So my mind was blown today mm -hmm. when I learned uh, one of my favorite songs from the 80s was done by a band from here. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people would guess this band, Strange Advance, is from Europe, but no, they're locals. Here's they the were part of that great, there were so many great musicians in the late 70s and 80s in Vancouver that made it. I mean, Brian Adams, uh, Loverboy, the Paolas. There are others, but I don't have the time. But I will <laughs> mention one more, Strange Advance. Strange advance. 
In the 1980s, Strange Advance was a band better known for its sound and songs and its image. And that's still the way it is. So we're like this weird anomaly where yeah. everyone knows the songs, but no one knows the name of the band or where we're from. Yeah, it, most, most people thought, thought the band was European. But they were very much Vancouver. However, after three successful albums, chief songwriter Drew Arnett, who founded the band with Daryl Crom and Paul Iverson, shut things down. We took some time off, and, uh, <laughs> and here we are. By time, you mean... Decades. <laughs> yeah, and also, it's like a different time. You know, grunge showed up. You know, uh, everything changed. But Strange Advance wasn't about the change, it sound just to chase money. No, I, I didn't want to do anything musical that I wasn't interested in. So I, I promised myself I would just do stuff that made me happy. It, it takes a certain skill set to balance between genres, but it's not necessarily a, a, an advantage. You know, sometimes it's better just to be true to yourself and, and run with it. So the band put itself on hiatus for almost 30 years until the death of one of its heroes, David Bowie, brought them back. Yeah, it's like, you know, he, he was our sort of unknown mentor, and, uh, and he's dead, and it's like, we're next, you know, That's so right. if we're going to do something, we better do it now. So they got the band back together, are on the verge of putting out their first album in 33 years, and have realized that the songs they did before they stopped have found a whole new audience. I'm really surprised at how many young people are signing on, you know, to the fact. Oh, yeah. Enthusiastic devotion to mm -hmm. the legacy of this band is, is, is remarkable, actually. Yeah. And, it's, it's, and it's testament to the music. And thank you for the earworm. Yeah, that music stands the test oh, it's, of time. It's too, brilliant. It? I want to say one quick thing. We lost a, a great journalist here, John Copsey, who was on our NW side uh, a little while ago, not that long ago. It was John who put me on this story. Oh, so great. that one's cool. for John. Yeah, thanks great. very much, Squire. All right, Christy, we'll give the final word to you. Sure. So another cold one tonight. Make sure you bundle the kids up tomorrow morning. Dry throughout the day. It's the Friday night, Saturday thing that's a bit of an issue. So yeah, tune back in tomorrow. We'll refine that forecast. It's going to be a bit touch and go when it comes to uh, sledding on Saturday for Metro Vancouver. Be ready uh, for anything. Yeah, I'll yeah. be glued to the TV. <laughs> Me too. Sure. Thanks a lot, Christy. And thanks for watching, everyone. See you tomorrow. Good night, all.